Welcome to the God is Not an Asshole podcast. If you are one of the many people done with religious dogmatism, hang on. You might sense transcendence, but your church or other faith community never seem to get off the ground. You realize that honoring your conscience means more than fitting in and keeping hard to explain rules? Hang on. You could probably think of the goodness in your tradition, and you tried your best to save that baby, but there's so much bathwater. Join your hosts, David Norman Moore Jr. in California and Carrie Connolly in New Jersey, who are collaborating to bring on guests who have found life on the other side of fundamentalism. Guests with stories of how they have liberated themselves from beliefs that divide us from each other. None of our guests' narratives are identical, but we hope you'll find something in common with each of them. We invite you to experience our common bond as we all inspire even more of us to embrace the true self. All right, friends, welcome to our show. And uh, Carrie and I are delighted to have with us today, Matt Lowe. Matt uh, lives here in Santa Barbara. He is a disability liberation theology scholar. And uh, while the majority of his work surrounds racial reparations, he had to repair his own relationship with disability. At the age of 16, Matt lost his vision from a genetic disease and would find himself transitioned from a life path of hockey playing to a life path of restorative justice. In fact, his dream was to be in the NHL. Um, He was born in the Burbs, but raised in the hood of East Oakland. Matt's coming of age left him with many questions of race, disability, humanity, love. He's a contemplative activist, and he enters into spaces of liminality as a community healer and also somebody still in healing. Matt identifies as a Franciscan Menecostal that tries to live a life that would make Paulo Freire uh, proud. So I'm going to ask you, Matt, to go ahead and explain what a Franciscan Menecostal is and also share with us uh, Paulo Freire. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Francisco Pentecostal is kind of like a, just a, a spiritual mutt, if you will, you know, just a, a Mennonite and a Pentecostal and a Franciscan. Uh, I just love how rooted in the earth Franciscans are and the peace activism and the just, a, yeah, the peace activism that, that is rooted in the Mennonite tradition and the spirit-filledness that comes from the, the Pentecostal tradition. So I just, uh, I'm a, a, a borrower and appreciator of, of many traditions and just a, uh, just ultimately saying, don't put me in a box, you know? So. <laughs> I hate boxes, too. Right, right. <laughs> what box? I mean, I don't even see a box, so I don't know what you're talking about. There's no boxes. <laughs> we ain't playing with boxes. We don't play that game. All right. Really tell curious. us about... Yeah, Karen? Care? I, I just, uh, I'm curious, and maybe we should, I should let you say, ask what you were going to ask, but I'm, I'm really curious about how you define restorative justice. I think that's a really, mm. I'm not sure that a lot of people are familiar with that term. So I want to yeah. know how you define yeah. it. Um, I realized I didn't answer David's question about Paulo Freire. Um, and let me do that one because I think it may lead into the restorative justice question, actually. Um, yeah, go for it. In the sense that Paulo Freire is a Brazilian educator. He was a uh, taught literacy to 
poor people in, in Brazil and was kicked out of the country during the revolution. And essentially what he thought or saw was that poor people were not being educated because they did not want to be taught about their experience. And if you kept people uneducated, then, then you could keep them separate and disempowered. And so he came, uh, I believe he went to Chile, and then he was actually a professor at Harvard for, for a long while and wrote this famous, famous book called Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Pedagogy, pedagogy just simply means uh, what we teach, how we teach. And fun fact, pedagogy, uh, Brown versus Board of Education, 1955, didn't completely, completely end uh, desegregation or discrimination. It uh, still allowed it through pedagogy. So this is why pedagogy is so important. But pedagogy of the oppressed um, talks about our education system of you can have... You can move from one fundamentalism to another fundamentalism if you don't heal, if you don't step into the subjective experience, um, because they're, they're rooted in the same fatalistic outcomes. So if we don't heal, if we don't grieve, if we don't learn what it means to be with one another and step into our uh, subjective human experience, our lived experience, then it's, it, it'll, it does continue to the same harm because it's rooted in objectivity. Objectivity is rooted in this education system that, that Paulo Freire calls banking. And so that's what our traditional education system is, which me means how much knowledge can you stuff in there and recall it at a particular time, aka for a test or for a particular purpose and bank it, put it all in there, say that I have all this money in there and then withdraw it at a certain point. That's what Paulo Freire calls the banking model. And he encourages us that that is a, a tool of the oppressor. Um, that is a tool that keeps us out of our own lived experience and in objectivity. And so he's saying we need to step into our subjectivity to become fully alive. And so, yeah, that's that's what we step into. So that as Paulo Freire, there's a, there's a healing aspect to that. And so the question that came to me in Restorative Justice, it's so funny. I thought I was being this revolutionary person as an undergrad. I was a history and black studies major. And uh, as a history student, I was a... Uh, my my senior thesis was on truth and reconciliation commissions within universities in the United States. So I was saying like Harvard and Princeton and Yale and their actions towards um, repairing slavery. And I was like, they were asking the questions like, well, what do we do? You know, I was like, what is true restorative justice? And I'm like, I didn't know what field I was stepping into that indigenous practices have been practicing this for millennia, you know, and um but restorative justice simply asks the question, what is the next greatest step of healing? And there's a, there's a process that it takes um, to go through. There's, you know, four basic questions that you could, that kind of guide you through the process of who was harmed, what is the harm, who are the stakeholders involved, and then what is the next greatest step of healing? Um, restorative justice frames it as a process of healing um, instead of punishment. Oftentimes in our current system, systems uh we're, we're taught to punish you know do the time for the crime okay. so restorative justice is the opposite what is the greatest amount of healing for the harm that was done and it doesn't pin people as like a victim versus offender and said hey this is somebody that was harmed and you know here's somebody that you know uh was involved in that and what is the greatest amount of healing that can take place and it really looks at the communal aspect it doesn't view it as us versus them it puts it, it makes it a trifecta. It makes it dynamic. It makes it, it to me, it makes it spiritual um, because there's one, two, and three. And when there's three, it's dynamic. It's not just a, 
um, there's a, there's communal involvement. There's input by um, people that are all impacted, not just this person versus this person. So, mm. yeah, wow. I love that. You know, it's it's really fascinating because in the work that I do, I often talk about the soul, the wound of dominance, right? The soul yeah. wound of dominance. That that is it is mm -hmm. a there's a wounding in dominant identities. And then I was reading My Grandmother's Hands by Mesmer um, uh, Renicum, who re refers to that. But then he also, in a footnote, talks about that indigenous uh, peoples here in North America referred to the soul wound of, of the colonizers who were coming and decimating their their people, you know? So um, I think that truth, when, we, when, it, when it catches us, you know, it, we discover it it's already made its rounds, but I think that's a good sign, you know? Yeah. I can't help but to, to reflect on Matt, as you were talking here in town, uh, our, our church hosted, uh, uh, Diana Galindo Roybal um, a week and a half ago. And yeah, she, she is the, um, a, a local, a local superintendent of schools. And she talked about literacy and how their statistics, their analyses needed to be racialized and the importance of education. And she used her own story as someone who couldn't read when she was in the second grade and she had a teacher who took out time to, um, to help her. So how does that, how, how does that fit in, uh, that narrative fit in, um, your perspective, uh, uh, you know, on restorative justice and Paulo Freire especially? Well, the teacher stepped into the subjective, the lived experience. She did not know what Diana was going through as a young child, um, but stepped in as a teacher and didn't just view herself as an adversary to the child of like getting this child through the second grade or whatever, but instead as a community member. So she stepped in as a dual member, as a teacher and a community member at that moment and involved yes. the, the parents, um, I guess in some way of like stepping into the home, um, and stepping into the lived experience of the human and like, what is actually going on here? You know, they, they knew the, the teacher knew that there was something, something was, was off, you know? And so, Hey, why, you know, the subjective experience stepping into that, all it takes is that asking of why, and there's a fear of asking why, because when we uncover what is underneath, then that can be really scary. And so, um, that's kind of what, what has happened with ethnic studies. Ethnic studies, when we're asking for that to be taught in in high schools or you know colleges, all we're doing is trying to uncover why things happen the way they happen, and we're stepping into the lived experience and be like, oh, what would we what would we do different? Like, how would how would things be run? And that is scary to those in positions of power that are mm. um, that are rooting themselves in that that fatalistic tendency. It's it's this is reminding me, and bear with me because I'm, this is. I'm going to bring this back around, but I just recently um, read an article in the New Yorker, no, New York Times about the guy. It was an interview with the guy who founded Rolling Stone magazine. Mm. And this guy was a jerk. I'm just going to say it. And, and, uh, it. One of the things that he said was that he has written, recently written a book and the, the, the interviewer was pointing out that all of the guys that he interviewed were, first of all, all guys and they were all white from rock and roll, Bono. Mick Jagger, et cetera. And what this, this guy actually masters. had the nerve to say, uh, yes, masters, exactly. What this guy actually had the nerve to say 
when the interviewer asked him if why he didn't interview any women or black black artists was because none those people don't have the intellectual prowess um, to philosophize about the music industry. So people like Joni Mitchell and Grace Slick and, you know, and um, I was just sitting there and he goes, you know, I mean, I, he, the guy goes, well, how do you know? And he said, well, because I've read interviews with them and I've, you know, I've listened to their music and I've read interviews with them. And the thing that I've said was that he's never paying attention to the fact that he, all of every, all of those interviews were through the lens of the patriarchal racist music industry, right? That, so, so he didn't want to ask a question about what is Joni Mitchell's philosophy on the music industry, because he was judging her based on interviews that already came through a lens of patriarchy and, you know, and so I just think it's fascinating because when we think about education and the ways that education prepares students for whiteness, for a white society, and a, and a patriarchal society and a, and a society of dominance and hierarchy. I just, and, and how so much of that is so subtle. It's not even in the curriculum. It is in the curriculum, but it's not just in the curriculum. It's in the ways that teachers more harshly discipline black, young black boys than they do white boys, right? And then what happens is not only does that get internalized by the black body, but it also gets internalized by the white bodies in the room who are looking at the other, at the black bodies and saying, oh, that body is inherently more uh, disruptive or something because of the way the teacher is is responding to them. So I'm just, I'm curious about your thoughts. Like, Oh yeah, I, I and Carrie, let me just, question, and, but... and let me just jump in. And I think they're not more disruptive, but I think they have a right not. to be. <laughs> absolutely 100% indeed indeed so there's a there's a phrase in disability culture called acting up and uh, acting up is a form of one rebellion but two it's an expression so acting up could be somebody with uh somebody just causing a scene you know somebody just being upset somebody that has a more loud voice or doesn't have emotional or uh, voice regulation or has a stutter and just kind of like get it, it, they can they can get mad and get emotional and doesn't have like um it, they don't have the normalcy that everybody in society is expecting of a human in a particular situation so it's, it's called acting up and it's something that disability culture has taken back and has as a sense of pride about and so in the way of um rebelling against the banking system, I see uh, Black culture, uh, Latinx communities, um, disability communities rebelling against the, the, the acting up, um, the uh, behavioral or emotional outbursts that are being uh, pu uh, punitive uh, or being punished are, are things that are responsible and on the hands of the education system. For instance, if mm. there was a curriculum that was reading that, if there was an English class that was teaching about uh, uh, maybe in a predominantly Latinx community and was reading books on the uh, Bracero uh, Revolution or the Bracero Program and the building of the Latinx communities in Southern California and how that developed into the lowrider community, you know, and how they they developed into the Chicano culture, you know, so if there was a contextual part 
something that was understanding and they weren't being forced to read To Kill a Mockingbird or 1984, then they might have something of interest and not be, quote unquote, acting up or um, they won't be uh, distracted or talking in class or talking back, you know? And if the professor wasn't trying to shove something down their throat to make them learn to get a test score, then it wouldn't be, um, the the oppressive aspect of the system wouldn't be present. So, uh, which is why we need to step into the subjective. Yeah, and another interesting thing, dynamic in that, or another interesting point in that dynamic is the ways in which um, the dominant culture responds to such acting up. You know, for for black and brown bodies, it's punitive responses, and for uh, white bodies, it's usually medicated or treated. You know, it's behavioral, and oh, we have to help this student as opposed to punish the student, right? Mm. Which is, is the basis of the school to prison pipeline, et cetera, and so forth. And, and, and another thing that, that uh, you know, I didn't mention earlier about you uh, that I appreciate and respect is your commitment to doing uh, the, uh, the, the work as a man. And, you know, that's, you know, I think that the people that we are around are kind of a refuge from the toxicity in our culture um, because it just doesn't make sense um, to hold on to ways of the past. So tell us a bit about how wh- why it's important for you. Yeah, I don't really talk too much about it yet, and that's intentionally because I'm going to be launching a program for uh, the Healing Men Project. It's a project that I've been working on for a while, but this is not launched yet, so I don't really talk about it too much. It's helping men address the wounds of patriarchy so we can become better contributors in the world. And for me, that root is from disability, um, that that idea of being othered. So my sister had brain cancer when she was six years old and I was eight years old. So um, had a lot of residual issues for the next 10, 15 years afterwards. Still so much joy, so much love. I saw her as one of the most beautiful humans and angels sent to earth, whatever you want to call it. Mm. And um, she was my, my guiding. She was my guiding light helped me get through my vision loss when I was 16. But I also saw the way society treated her. I saw the way society othered her. I saw the way she was left out. I saw the way the medical system um, didn't, didn't it, it tried, but it didn't uh, fully care for her. It didn't accept her. It made things really hard. And um, I saw the logics in the way that people thought about her, the way they saw her as an animal. They, they, they savagized her, you know, and uh, beast, they, they, you know, referred to her as a beast, that's not, you know, if there was an emotional outbreak. And my heart, uh, well, let's say my heart, but like my, my experience, my, my purview of the world was softened because of this uh, experience. I saw how much on one hand, the world treated her with such disdain. But on, one, on the other hand, I saw how much love and vitality and joy this human had. And so I'm like, why, why, why are you treating this human this way? And so that, that experience of disability really informed the way that I would feel about my own disability. And then being a white man with a disability is a whole nother thing because you're, I, I'm having to, uh, the whole concept of patriarchy is one that is predicated about domination and being on top. And uh, my way is the only way. And it, it's the uh, the entitlements, the 
um, shutdownness, the and the way of disability is one of joy, one of expression, one of um, co-empowerment, one of peace, one of welcomeness, and mm. and joining together in in community. Um, community yeah. is our power, and so I had disability goes in the direct contradiction of what patriarchy is, and uh, yeah. So I I had to I I was made fun of, I was left out. So I had a real, I was softened in not only my sister's experience, um, but then in my, my, my own experience of- That developed later. Uh, that developed later. And I'm like, oh, this wasn't just her experience. This was also my experience. And then I, I also had the, the questions around race in my head and how that intersected with patriarchy and disability as well too. So uh, yeah, I'd say that's, that's kind of where it starts, started for me. Yeah. You know, I, I think Matt, you and I've talked about this before, but I, I have noticed uh, in my encounters with men that when they have someone in their family, particularly a sibling with a disability, it can be really transformative. And sometimes I will meet the person, the man, and not know anything about them. And then I'll be captivated by their humanity. And even if it's not the case, I will wonder, I wonder if he has a, a, a family member with a disability because it's just so uh, remarkable to me. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't put this on record in writing anywhere. And maybe I'll get some pushback on it, but it's just coming to mind right now. I'd say disability or dealing with disability, stepping into disability, the experience of it, it it's there's a very wide spectrum of it. So this is where I would get pushed back, but it's a, it's the closest thing that you can get to death in the, in the human experience of the, the, the fragility of life. And I've sat next to my sister while she's been on life support in the hospital. I've, you know, heard machines flatline. I've, so I've, I've had to confront death and the fragility of our human experience. And so I, I've had to ask the question of, of love and, and what it means to be human at a much younger age, and when men do that, it really, uh, it really puts them, gives them the perspective. You know that life is short. That um, oh, I, I, there's more to it. All right, they, it makes them wake up to their heart. Honestly, like they shut their heart down so much in their life, um, makes them aware of their soul and the connectedness with other people's pain and um, pain suffering is the great equalizer. And so when we go yeah. through that, and if we open ourselves up to it. it we open ourselves up to it. Yes. It, yes. it can be the great equalizer. One of the things that I that I often say is that straight white Christian men in America tend to be, uh, and able-bodied, I should say, also um, tend to be outside what I call the circle of empathy. Right, in that if I, as as a white woman, I don't know what it means to walk around in a in a black or brown body, but I do know what a microaggression feels like, right? Yep. And, and I know yep. the choices that need to be made in that in that moment. Um, do I choose between my safety or my dignity and fight back? Or like, what do I do, right? Um, and uh, I think that so what your point what you're pointing to there is is that idea that something and and when I say that that those men are outside the circle of empathy. I don't mean they cannot experience empathy. What I mean is that they have to extend a greater stretch of imagination um, intentionally in order to mm. to understand the way their dominance does harm. Yeah, and uh, 
so what you're pointing to is that is something that moves them into that circle of empathy. Mm. And that can be such a beautiful, it gives me hope um, for all of the pain that this life can bring because it means yep. that that there might be some sense of of healing for these this wound of dominance, right? That that otherwise just seems to perpetuate itself over and over and over again, generation after generation. It also like starts to show a little bit why society numbs us and gives us all these medications so that we don't feel pain. And so like pain is actually really important. Like it, it's it's pain is not bad. We pain is uh you know yeah, we we because pain is where we find out who we are. You know, it's necessary. It's I I my blindness is beautiful. Like nobody, I don't I don't want to change who I am. Like, and I meet other disabled people in the community that say the same exact thing. So it, it's it's not bad. Like, um, it's beautiful. And so shifting gears a little bit, then I'm really curious to know how you feel about the ways so often the quote healings in scripture are treated you know <laughs> let's go <laughs> yeah let's do it I, I really want to hear your thoughts on this all right go for um, it <laughs> so this is the stuff i love because there's so much well one we'll just start with patriarchy rooted in scripture all the way going back to genesis uh, and then yes. two yes, ableism you. so uh, i just kind of get get some get some foundational theory that i'm working with so like I said, race is completely tied up in uh, my concept of disability. I didn't come into my uh, 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 anti-ableism work or disability work until after I went through all of my studies on on race, my my bachelor's, my master's, um, understanding white supremacy. I was there for a part of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they was part of that. And um, so I had a, a liberating moment where I, where I started understanding ableism. And it was, uh, I had... I recognized my internalized self-hatred. And so there was so many things that taught me to hate my body, what I did, my disability, who I am, and it informed the way that I should move in this world. I, I, I shouldn't speak up. I, I can go to groups and be an activist, but I'm not going to say anything. Disability is not important. Um, it's, uh, um, I'm, I'm not a leader. I can't do, I can't say what I think is right. I, um, I'll just sit in the back seat. Um, uh, I can't start this thing. I don't deserve to get paid this. All those types of things. Like, um, yeah. And there's a logic. Uh, Andrea Smith talks about the logics of white supremacy. And the logic of ableism is disempowerment. So anything that is rooted in disempowerment is rooted in ableism. And so I just read a book the other day that said ableism is to disability is um, disabilityism as patriarchy is to misogyny and i was like yes somebody finally naming that like that was just very very clearly named i just i just learned that last week so we're all on that journey still still learning and okay. um, and then also just as a, a preemptive thing race tied in with disability there's a creator i can't remember their name right now but they said uh racial inferiority the first excuse was it was biological and because it's biological they are it is now rooted in ableism so racism is rooted in ableism i mean to me that goes back because ableism is goes farther back than the concept of race it goes back 5000 10000 years you know so it's it's uh, i would argue as one of the original wounds even before patriarchy and so 
the, the concepts in which we find our interconnection with, that we find our intersectionality with ableism, we have to do the work with, with race and gender and sexuality and, and disability as well too, because it's so essential. Because if we don't come home to disability, we're not going to come home, or if we, yeah, if we don't come home to disability, we're not going to come home to our bodies and all those other forms. And so these scriptures, this is where we get disability and faith <laughs> interconnected. And I, I get, I get all turned up. So the, the famous one that people often ask me about because I'm blind and they're like, Oh, it's the, um, where the rich young or not the rich young ruler, where the, the leader asks, goes, uh, or, or no, the disciple goes to Jesus and says, uh, who did, who sinned this father, the father or the mother yeah. of, of this blind person? And, uh, they're like, Oh, and especially because my, my disease is genetic. So they're like, Oh, it must have been passed down. And I, I get that question so much, even the question around geneticness, because people like want to know are, Oh, are my genes messed up? You know, Oh, did my, did my family sin at one point and mess up my, my lineage? You know, the, the <laughs> superiority of lineageness. Um, mm. and, and the, the purity of a, of a good, um, good human, you know, that's rooted in, in white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And so when we, when we think of those scriptures through the lens of disability, I don't think they're actually, so the disciples, yes, maybe they're coming from a, um, uh, a disabledist perspective, but it's the theology in which that it's actually coming from the, so it's not the disciples, it's the theology. And okay. the theology is understanding the ancestral lineages. So I don't think they actually understood genetic diseases and the superi- superiority of like, oh, this person is going to be damaged. They had an idea of clean versus dirty in their community. And somebody mm-hmm. had sinned. And so they had a way of kind of keeping people out that were unclean and that were, you know, not welcome. And so their logics were a little messed up and kind of not logical. So it's not, <laughs> it's not about a genetic disease. It's about understanding the contextual time period and whether people were clean or dirty so that other people didn't get contaminated with quote unquote deformed d- disabilities. You know, the other one that I often talk about is the one where the people like the famous one where people bring their wheelchair or they carry the guy and drop him through the ceiling to Jesus and like mm-hmm. oh, how, how a miracle that was. And we have to understand that houses weren't built in the same way. You didn't have to climb onto somebody's roof at that time period. And it, there's no houses weren't built with sticks and stuff like that. They were kind of built on hillsides and like with a little bit of a, mm-hmm. uh, uh, like a, I don't know, material over the over the edge for like the entryway. And so lifting somebody down was actually a form of accessibility. It's something we do in the disability community. Like sometimes pre-curb uh, cuts, there were no access for wheelchairs. You couldn't go like travel through the community. So people yeah. had to lift the person to like travel. Like that was a normal <laughs> thing. That was not a miracle. That was not abnormal for Jesus to experience somebody being lifted down into that because the house was often built on the hillside and somebody maybe would mm-hmm. have normally jumped like or maybe like taken a different path that was longer but somebody being lifted down and maybe that like had a uh maybe a bum leg or you know maybe was had maybe some muscular dystrophy going on or something so like yeah so understanding the context is super so important were, yeah context is 
so important and um, it's often missed. <laughs> um, my, what I'm curious about though, is I think, you know, one of the, the ways that I've tried to think about it or, or played with thinking about it is the idea that what Jesus was actually doing when he was quote healing, and I'm always using air quotes, right? Cause what are we, what is healing really? Right. Is it really saying, you know, uh, taking, making a blind person no longer blind? Is that true healing or was the healing, the restoration to community, right? Because I think so much of it is not so much because if we say, oh, this person, Jesus took away this person's blindness, that somehow inherently is saying that blindness is not yeah, or good, yeah. right? Yeah. But it's really, it's about restoring that person to community because of the social constructs that removed that person exactly. from our community. Exactly. Right. It's, so it's about the social construct, mm -hmm. not and and healing the social construct, not healing that human being who was perfectly beautiful and in God's sight. Yeah. So That's David, God's David, David and I view. had a conversation. No. Help me find the right language around you got, that. No, I'm you, no, you are, you are on point. You, you're, you're teaching already. So uh, okay. David and I were having this conversation actually a couple of months ago because we read a book around the same time unknowingly, and it talked about disability in the indigenous perspective is uh, the way they view it. And the, the book talked about it this way. Disability is the separation from community. Whereas in our Western modern world, disability is your inability to produce and create a commodity, commodity for society. So disability mm -hmm. is based upon labor. Wait, wait, so, wait, can you say that? Because that's really important. <laughs> absolutely, that's, that's the intersectionality with capitalism. Uh, well, not to say capitalism, yeah. but labor, um, because it's not just in capitalism um, that we need to recognize as well, too. Because, I mean, what any form, and this is where we get into like teaching about the medical model or the social model or the charity model. The charity model is something that the church really promoted after the Renaissance. And then the medical model came mm -hmm. in once we started getting all this medical technology in the 20th century. And then the social model is where we start to really understand systems of disadvantage and um, power and things like that, and we understand how labor play, plays a role in it because they. I won't get a, I won't get hired because I can't see something. I can't. It's too much effort for too much money for Starbucks to create an accessible program on their checkout systems or to put Braille on their things. So it, it's it's a cost. It's a cost to create a system that works for me, and it's also a cost for time to create. A product and then also it takes longer for someone like me to do something so i'm just not deemed as fit for the labor force and the same thing for military like okay yeah i'm not they're not going to give me a gun but they they recruiters don't go after people with disabilities like there's they're, they're not seen as valuable so it's a form of mm -hmm. again the logic of disempowerment so like what is the, there's no um uh, we're just seen as to be put into the welfare system of like, okay, yeah, we're here in society, but, you know, find your own way. Hopefully you can start to find something maybe in human services where, you know, you can make a menial wage and, you know, just make it through life. And so it's not seen as a place of, hey, we need to empower that this person has great skills and strengths. Yeah. You know, okay. the irony is, yeah, you mentioned the military. Yeah. But a lot of the, a lot of the people that end up leaving the military leave with disabilities. They didn't have. Exactly when they mm -hmm. went in. And so it's just, uh, you know, it's an exploitation in many ways, uh, you know, a, a commodification of human lives. 
The root of disability activism actually stemmed out of the military after World War I and then really extended after World War II and then into the 60s really gained power because there was so many veterans after World War II and then after Vietnam um, that, that had disabilities. They're like, I don't want to live this way. And so um, it, was, it was only after the wars where white men came back for more and realized that they didn't have a life and they weren't supported and they weren't given the same GI benefits and the, the um, veterans hospitals didn't care for them and just kind of discarded them and said, no, nah, oh, you know, they just, it, they would, were given the premium uh, care. And then, you know, came the 504 no, sit in and then the ADA. So much of, of what, what you're talking about too is, is just pointing in my mind to the intersectionality of all of this within the, the construct of capitalism, because I, I'm a, I have been a stay at home mom for the past 20 or so years. And now I'm, going through a divorce and I'm completely unhirable, right? Then, that's, that's the yep. situation that I'm in right now. And I am in a situation with my, that, uh, I was having a conversation with my girlfriend the other day who's in a very similar situation and she still has two uh, very special needs kids at home. And she's like, don't I get any credit for mm -hmm. all of the stuff that I do to manage their schooling mm -hmm. and their, and I system. still hold down a job and I still am the one who pays all, makes sure all the bills get paid and runs this household. Yeah. Like, Don't I get any credit for any of that labor? And so the idea of the, of how we value different types of labor, you know, yeah. and, and that the only kind of that, that you're the labor or the, or the gifts that you would bring to the world um, as a as a person who is blind is somehow less valued than somebody who has sight right yeah. it, it it's just a really it's it's a really fascinating thing that happens in the undercurrents of our society that we don't pay attention to until we do and that's what I hope this this podcast episode is going to bring up for people yeah my mom's in that same situation so I, I i get that yeah there's no resources even for, for care providers either so you know um let alone no. for people with disabilities so um yeah okay. this is the system strips us it's a uh hip-hop artist uh, brother ali says um if you take welfare they're gonna put you in hell there. so <laughs> yeah indeed thank you so much for being here today we are people who have left behind performance-based religion and the shame that comes with it. Maybe you have a personal liberation story to tell and we want to know about it. Please contact us on Twitter at God is not an asshole or text 805-703-8393 because the world needs to know that God is not an asshole.